verse 24. He says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath, a more memorial of blowing of trumpets, a commanded assembly. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the eternal. And that's all he says about it. He goes into much more detail about some of the other days. But we have a plethora of scriptures, really, throughout the Bible to expand upon what he tells us here. Here he just tells us a few things. When it is, and that it will be a Sabbath, and a blowing of trumpets, and then not to work, but have an offering made by fire. Of course, all the sacrifices that God did institute in the Old Testament were simply a composite of all the things that Christ would do himself. And every one of those offerings, or every one of those sacrifices, whatever form would all point to him in some way and he fulfilled them all now, we don't bring a an animal anymore under the new covenant christ is our sacrifice but he told us to bring an offering uh, before him on all the holy days uh, as in cattle or sheep or monetary or whatever uh, works often back then they would bring their offerings on the hook and turn them in at the beginning of the feast to those who would take care of them. And I'm sure a lot of those were used for the animal sacrifices during that particular feast. So that's all he says here. But I want to focus on the blowing of trumpets. Let's look into that a bit by going to Numbers. It's a good starting place, Numbers 10. God gives us some instruction here, <clears throat> or them at that time, of course. But he lays some groundwork for some of the things we're going to talk about today. He spoke to Moses saying, Make you two trumpets of silver. Of a whole piece shall you make them. So they weren't to have a, a whole bunch of pieces. The metal was to be... Uh, refined into a large chunk so that it was all one piece. This may not actually have been actual silver. I've got a feeling it could have been very likely palladium uh, because some of the silver that the Spanish were supposed to have mined here apparently was palladium instead of actual silver. They called it uh, immature silver because it did not act like silver it, it was processed differently refined differently and they had problems with it and they didn't know the difference in those days between platinum palladium and silver so they just called it immature silver they knew something was haywire but they weren't sure quite what and I think that the source of this metal that they were using here under Moses may have been the same, uh, we shall see. 
I'll bet those two trumpets still exist. Wouldn't surprise me in the least. Anyway, one piece. And you may use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. So they were a signal. If you needed to talk to everybody, you blew the two trumpets. If you wanted a journey, it was time to break camp, you blew the trumpets. Probably had a different sound for each of those so the people knew what to do when they heard a certain sound from the trumpets. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to you at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, you can extrapolate that ahead if you want to. We'll get there in some scriptures before the day's over uh, because God uses this on through the Bible. And we'll see that as we go. So it's not just something there to draw those people together. He's instituting something here that he will use over and over through the scriptures. And they that bow or blow, but with one trumpet, then the princes, which are heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. And when you blow an alarm the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey. They shall blow an alarm for their journeys. But when the congregation is to be gathered together, you shall blow, but you shall not sound the alarm. Just blow. So the trumpet gave you the information you needed to gather and when to gather and who was to gather. Keep that in mind as we go through the scriptures today. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be to you for an ordinance forever throughout your generations. So he appointed the priesthood to blow the alarm. And we'll find in some of the prophecies that the prophets, the priests, were the ones whom God sent to blow an alarm to the people in generations on down the line from here. And even we're anticipating, as we heard in the special music, trumpets to blow in the future. Not done yet. And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresses you, then you shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and you shall be remembered before the eternal your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. Now, there's an incredible uh, promise right there that if they would sound the alarm before God in obedience to God, he would save them. Also, in the day of your gladness and in your solemn days and in the beginnings of your months, you shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the eternal, your God. I wonder if we have our new moon Bible studies, we ought to <laughs> get these shofars out and blow them before Bible study as a memorial. I don't know that it's commanded per se, but it certainly is 
uh, something that would remind us of the use of trumpets and what they were for. Let's go now and examine some places where trumpets were used. They are used at times of great drama, of excitement, of important events. Just as we just read there, uh, your Sabbaths, your days of happiness, your days of war, whatever, the trumpet was a part of it because it imparted whatever knowledge you needed at the time, whatever perhaps emotion in times of happiness and joy, and we'll see a time or two of that as we go through today. But here in Exodus 19, the setting is the giving of the covenant between God and Israel. This is about as important an event as there was. So let's look at this a bit. It says, In the third month, when the children were gone out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And he talks about it. Verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Eternal called to him out of the mountain, saying, You shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children, the children of Israel. So here is one of the few times in history that direct information, direct instruction was given from God to man from Christ who was in Melchizedek or the God of the Old Testament. So what does he say? You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I brought you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I took you away from Pharaoh. I brought you out across the Red Sea and brought you to me. Now, there's a pretty serious upgrade from Pharaoh to Christ. Now, therefore, considering this, in other words, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a particular or redeemed treasure to me above all people. Now, this was a redemption. He redeemed them from the land of Mitzrayim, and brought them out there to him. So that's a type for things we are anticipating right now. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. That reminds me of Revelation 5.10, the kingdom of God. You'll be kings and priests before him. So he is setting the stage for his whole plan going forward. And this will appear over and over again. So Moses called them, told them what God had said. Verse 8, And all the people answered together and said, All that the Eternal has spoken, we will do. Now there's a nice, firm, positive approach and response. Yeah, you're right, Moses. Whatever he says, we'll do it. And so Moses returned the words of the people to the eternal. He said, they've all agreed. We're going forward with this thing. 
You have to have both sides agreeing in order to make a covenant or an agreement, which is essentially what the covenant is, is an agreement. And the Lord said to Moses, Lo, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. Now what is the day of the Lord that is just ahead of us? A day of thick clouds and gloominess and darkness and fear. Now these people were about to imbibe in some fear. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. We're going to make an agreement, and I want them to come clean and wearing their best, and it shall be clean. We must be clean to bear the vessels of the eternal, Isaiah 52, what, 11 or 12, somewhere in there. And be ready against the third day. Two days to get bathed, cleaned up, wash your clothes, get ready, because the third day this is going to happen. For the third day the Eternal will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And you shall set bounds to the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you go not up to the mount or touch the border of it. Don't even step on the very first lift, the very first as it starts up. Whosoever touches the mountain shall be surely put to death. <coughs> Do you think this is a serious thing that's going on yet? There shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through with arrows. Whether it be man or beast, it shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. Why did he say that? That probably got their attention. They were to leave, they were to wash, they were to wash their clothes, and they were not to have a relationship with their wives at that time, preparing for the third day. How many times in the Bible does God say to abstain from a sexual relationship, husband and wife? You can count that up pretty quick. Here it is here. <laughs> it was to get their attention, partly, and to be sure their minds were on what was going on with God instead of what goes on in their normal everyday life. That's the key here. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings in a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud. Now were the people blowing trumpets, or were angels blowing trumpets? I suspect that may have been the case, that God was causing these sounds to come from that mountain. And
And a trumpet is a very compelling instrument, powerful and loud, and stirs emotion. So God is doing a very dramatic thing here. He is the drama king. And I say that with an all-positive emphasis. True drama coming from God. Exceeding loud trumpet, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. They shook. They were scared. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. And here they heard something that scared them. So they began to have a little wisdom here, maybe. I doubt if anybody went near the mountain. I really doubt it. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. So this was a meeting that was high level, as high as you can get. The people were to go meet with God. This is a summit conference, if you will. These are leaders of the world, but we got the summit of Sinai here, and the people gathered before it. First true summit meeting. Meet with God, and they stood at the other part of the mountain, the other end of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Eternal descended upon it in fire. May have been volcanic activity. Wouldn't surprise me in the least. The smoke thereof ascended as a smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And that's what happens with volcanic activity. You have a lot of earthquakes. You have smoke and steam and ash arising. I don't know whether it was that or not, or it was simply a specific episode that God did since he was there, apart from even volcanic activity, but, but the effect was the same. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. And the Eternal came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up and said to Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through to the eternal to gaze, and many of them perish. Let's not have any looky-loos and curiosity seekers here. Warn them again. Don't come near. Does this give you the impression that appearing before God is a very significant event. Not to be taken lightly in any way. And let the priests also which come near to the eternal sanctify themselves, lest the eternal break forth upon them. Moses said to the eternal, The people cannot come to Mount Sinai, for you charged us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and sanctify it. And God said, Away, get you down, you shall come up, you and Aaron with you, <coughs> but let not the priests and the people break through to come up to the eternal, lest he break forth upon them. 
So he went down and spoke. And then God gave the Ten Commandments. Now, it doesn't record it all right here, but it does in Deuteronomy 5, where it's mentioned again. And you have the story of what? All that the Eternal says we will do. And he had this dramatic, incredible, loud, noisy demonstration of his power and his might. And they almost immediately turned to making a golden calf to worship like they might have seen in Egypt or Mitzrayim. How quickly our resolve can vanish away. How quickly we can turn from God to other things, to turn from his laws. He gave them all there to regulate our conduct in every part of life. And now we are here today trying to live up to those commandments. He summarized them, love God above everything and love your man, neighbor as yourself. But he got specific here when he gave these because those are ways that regulate your uh, love and worship of God and the way you treat your fellow man. There are certain things you have to do in order to keep peace between you and God and between you and man, and the Ten Commandments outline those for us. So God used the trumpet at the time that he made a covenant with Israel, a covenant which they broke immediately. Maybe we should pay great attention to some of these examples today because God is calling to come with us. And how well do we keep it? How much do we live up to it and raise, rise to the standard that God requires of us? We don't love him above everything at all times, do we? Sometimes we put ourselves and our human desires, whatever they might be, ahead of him. That's idolatry, breaks the first commandment. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves, but sometimes we treat them pretty shabbily uh, and not in a way that we would want to be treated, but we can be abrupt, we can be rude, we can be unthoughtful, we can be standoffish. We can be a lot of things we should not be with our neighbor if we were to love them as we love ourselves. We don't like to be ignored. We don't like to be put down. We don't like to be gossiped about. We don't like a lot of things that might be done to us, but then we turn around and do it to them. And that's breaking the first co co the covenant the new covenant he made with us, just as much as making that golden calf was a breaking of the covenant then. We don't make a golden calf, except out of ourselves and our human desires. That's the calf that we build and fall down and worship before, and then maybe we'll wake up and say, I guess I put myself before God here, didn't I? I guess I didn't treat my neighbor as I would want to be treated quite, did I? 
Oops. And then we have to work on these things. But I think God meant business whether the people really did or not. They sounded like they did, but they turned out to be a bit hypocritical. Uh, God is not, and was not, and is not, and never will be. Let's go to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. I'll just pick up part of the context here. Uh, he's talking about the seven-year uh, land rest and all that. But coming down to verse 8, he says, And you shall number seven Sabbaths of years unto you seven times seven years, 49 years. In the space of the seventh Sabbath of years shall be to you 49 years. Some people say that the Jubilee was the 49th year. Uh, is that what this says? You'll have seven times seven, and he makes it clear that's 49 years. And when the 49 years are done, then shall you cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to be sound on the 10th day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. <coughs> and you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee to you, and you shall return every man his possession, and so on. Verse 11, a jubilee shall that fiftieth year be to you. Not the forty-ninth, but the fiftieth. I don't know how people get these things so screwed up. It's just plain English or Hebrew. Anyway, there was to be a trumpet sound on atonement announcing that the following year, the 50th year, was to be the Jubilee. So here is a very, very important event. Every 50 years, and... We're going to have a jubilee coming up, which will begin the millennium. Because God is going to return land, he's going to return blessing, he's going to go back and do everything that he promised throughout the whole scriptures to the earth at the beginning of the millennium. Let's go to Joshua 6. Joshua 6. Now they were coming into the land. They'd spied it out. Moses had gone up on the mountain to die, and Joshua was about to lead them into the promised land. So this is an event that they had been told about by Moses even as they left Mitzrayim and came out of slavery, and they were going to be taken to a promised land. Wonderful land. And the spies came back saying they couldn't even carry the grapes. Incredible place. So they were about to go in there. Very dramatic. Something that the people looked to 
forward to for 40 years and then been told, you older people aren't going in. You rebelled against me. You did not keep my covenant. Remember Sinai? Remember the smoke, the fire, the lightning, the earthquakes, the trumpets? Do you remember that? No, I guess you don't. You won't do what I say. Therefore, your carcasses are going to die in the wilderness. And that which you desired, the promised land, will be reserved for your children. I'm not going to go back on my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you're not going. Your kids are. Well, this is pretty dramatic. But he would let a whole generation wander around until they all died and then get ready to take them in. Now, this was a very significant moment in the history of Israel. Incredible. We have promised land promised to us again today, do we not? In many scriptures we can go to, don't have time today. Now, right inside the promised land was a town called Jericho. Now, you remember, Moses went away, and just like God had backed up the Red Sea under Moses, he across on stones without even getting their feet wet. So God showed them, I have appointed Joshua as the leader. Moses is gone, but look now what I'm doing. Same kind of miracle I did with Moses when you came out. Doing it again here for you. So this is pretty dramatic. I've never seen a river flow backward, have you? I mean, I've seen a boat make wake, and it'll kind of, the surface will move, but you won't see rivers turning around and going backward. Maybe a tsunami will move back a little bit now and then, but, but there's still water everywhere, and you're not going to walk across it. But that's what he did here. Now, Jericho was fully buttoned up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. They boarded it up, if you will, shut the gates, locked the gates, stand up, whatever they did, scared Israel. And they stood on the wall, probably, and watched the river back up, and millions of people walk across and go to the God, and it scared them. I've given to your hand Jericho, and the king of God, and the mighty men of power. You shall compass the city, all you men of war, and go round about the city once. This you shall do six days. So there's a build-up here. God is doing something dramatic again. He's doing something that's attention-grabbing. You think those people weren't watching every move as they marched around the city every day for six days? The intensity built. The fear built. The confidence of Israel probably was built. Because they could see 
that those people were scared of them. When you're going into a fight, isn't it always good to know someone's afraid of you? Gives you a lot more energy. The seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. So this time, come Sabbath, they marched around seven, not just one time, and had seven trumpets blowing. Everybody in Jericho must have been quaking in their boots by now. What's going on? They just march once and then they go away and stop. Now they just keep going round and round. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast of ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city shall fall down flat and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. So they had a wall of men all the way around <coughs> the city. And when all four walls fell flat, they were to go straight in from wherever, whatever side they were on. And Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. And let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the eternal. And he said to the people, Pass on, encompass the city, and let him that is armed pass on before the ark of the eternal. So here was the ark of the covenant, which they still were carrying. And it came to pass, when Joshua had spoken to the people, that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Eternal, and blew with the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal followed them. And the armed men went before the priests that blew with the trumpets, and the rear guard came up after the Ark, the priests going on and blowing the trumpets. So you had men ahead of it, and then you had a rear guard coming up behind it. So they were circled all the way around. And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, you shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth, until the day that I bid you shout, then shall you shout. So other than the blowing of trumpets, this was done in abject silence. Try accomplishing that. I used to go hunting with my sons at times. And I would instruct them. We're after deer or elk or whatever we were hunting. And if they hear you, it scares them and they run away. So you are to be absolutely quiet. You're not to say anything. And you watch where you put your feet so you don't step on twigs and branches and dry leaves and alarm them that way. And we're to go into the wind so that your scent doesn't blow to them. Try to instruct them on all this. Do you think they could keep their mouths shut? Not a chance. I had to have something to say at some point. And I would say, Ugh! 
not loudly, but the emotion was there. And I would turn around and whisper a scolding to them to shut up. It's hard to accomplish that. Now, you get a couple million people out there marching around and tell them not to make a sound. That's a tough assignment. It truly is. How often do you speak when you know you shouldn't? <laughs> you know what I mean? So the Ark of the Eternal, Compass the City, once they came back, and he rose early in the morning, they did the same thing, and this went on the second day, and they did this for six days, verse 14, and it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times, only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Eternal has given you the city, and the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein, to the Eternal, and only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves accursed when you take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But everything there, silver, gold, everything would be consecrated to God. They were not to partake of it themselves. God was doing this thing in great drama. And he wanted them to realize who had done it. Did he need the gold and the silver? Well, it was nice to have in the treasury, yes. But God didn't really need it, did he? But he wanted them to learn that material wealth is not what we're here about. We're here about worshiping the King, the Lord of hosts. And he's the one that backed up the river. He's the one that caused the walls to fall down. He's the one that caused these people to be so scared they couldn't even fight. As Amos put it, prepare to meet your God. Verse 20, so the people shouted when the priest blew with the trumpet, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, and every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was there, man and woman, young and old, ox, sheep, ass, with the edge of the sword. But he had said to the two men, you go get Rahab and her family. Now, with all this drama and everything, would it have been kind of easy to forget Rahab? I would think so. She was just a prostitute. She let him down. But, you know, that pleased God. It pleased God with this woman who did not know him, did not really know Israel, but harlot though she was, she had some uh, good, I can't find my words, 
she had good qualities about her, let's put it that way. She still had emotion and feeling for someone in danger and in trouble. And she may have known some about Israel, I don't know. But she protected those spies and let them down so that their lives would not be taken. And God remembers that. The widow's mite was a very small offering. You know, you start counting the offering, you Pharisees, and it's kind of nice to see that somebody gave a house. Kind of nice to see somebody gave a few cows or whatever, big offerings, and wow, this is nice. And it was. But she just had one little mite, a small coin, and she gave it. And it was all she had. Now that, God, that moved God more than a big offering would have. You know, like on a holiday offering, there have been people in the church over the years who had millions of dollars. And to them, putting in a 10,000 check didn't really mean much to them. They could do that. And if they gave ten or 20,000 bucks, they'd get a personal letter from Garner Ted Armstrong thanking them for it. Somebody to put in 10 bucks or 100 or 500, they didn't get a letter. But that widow gave that might into Christ, to the Father. That was the biggest offering of all. Some child, maybe, comes in and out of what money he might have gotten somehow, some way from his parents or someone, he can give a dime. That's all he can give. Or these days, a dollar, because that's what a dime used to be worth. Whatever. If he's giving that out of his heart as an offering before God, that's just precious. I know I've counted offerings for many, many years in the church, and I think about that pretty often. Here's some change, or here's a dollar bill by itself. And I think that might be all somebody could give. Wow, what a precious thing. Because I, I try to look at it the way Christ looked at the widow and the mite. And that's what he tells us. Bring what you can cheerfully give. And you should take time to think about that and pray about that because we have the ability, each of us different abilities, to bring whatever we might bring. But it's not an offering to the church, really. It's not an offering to the ministry. It's an offering to God that we bring before him. And he says he loves a cheerful giver. Well, how much can you cheerfully give? That depends on your attitude a lot. So you pray about it, and you think about it, you meditate on it, and you think, what can I bring before God? You know, with a lot of us over the years, we got to the point where we just, we always write the check for the same amount. It's, that's my holy day offering. That's what I always do. I've been doing that for 40 years now. Same amount. 
I have a question about that. Is that something before each holy day you go to God with, you talk to him about, and you look at whatever you might have at the time, whether it be little or much, and you say, how much could I give to God? Now, he doesn't expect us to give everything we've got. Now, as far as our being, as far as ourselves, he expects us to give everything we are. What we give in an offering is only a symbol of that. It's a small part of that. But it is something that human beings have difficulty with because we are so materialistically oriented. So maybe we don't like to think about it too much, lest we think, well, I could give more. Uh, how much does God mean to me? You know, you can ask yourself some questions. How much could I actually give and just instead of whipping out my book and doing what I always do? Taking it for granted, nonchalantly, this is what I do. So it's done with very little, if any, thought. It's just your habit. I don't think God appreciates that in the way that he would appreciate. Now, he may appreciate the offering, don't get me wrong. But I think he would appreciate it a lot more if it was something we thoughtfully, prayerfully looked at and decided based on our current situation. There might be times where what you have traditionally given for the last 50 years you might not really be able to afford that amount. Think about it prayerfully. Or you might start thinking about it and say, you know, I've been kind of in a nonchalant, carefree, habit mode. Should I think about this? Should I give something that I have gone to God and talked about and put my heart into and then come up with a figure so that your heart is in it. God loves someone who can cheerfully give to him because he finds it in his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So he does not ask us to do anything that he is not himself willing to do and is going to do. So if we give cheerfully to him, that makes it easier for him to make it his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It's back and forth. We give to God, and God gives to us. So I very rarely talk about money. I think there's an example here where God said, this time you bring it all. I want you to know who is behind what's going on right here. And he could have reviewed some history again, couldn't he? He could have said, remember the Red Sea? Remember Sinai? Remember you taking the gold and the ornaments and turning it into an idol instead of God? I don't want to repeat of that. We've got another very important moment here. You're going into the promised land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and your father's all died out there and rotted, and you get to go. 
This is a special privilege. Therefore, you take nothing, give it all to me. <coughs> An object lesson is what he's doing. He doesn't tell us to do that on a daily or a weekly or a monthly or a feast day basis. But he does, in principle, tell us to give all our heart, mind, body, and soul to him. Withhold nothing from me. That's what got Ananias and Sapphira in trouble. They decided to withhold something. Everybody else was going to do what the apostles had asked. But they decided, well, you know, we'll still be given a mighty nice offering. But let's don't do what was asked. Let's hold some back. Well, they got drug out because God was at another very important, dramatic juncture in the early history of the new church where he was expecting total and utter compliance with whatever he sent down. And when they didn't, they were made a very powerful example of. So, he took care of Rahab, brought her and her family out alive. But one guy, verse 7, or chapter 7, did what Ananias and Sapphira did and what I've just been talking about. Achan decided, hey, there's something I think I ought to have. So he grabbed it, took it, buried it in his tent, and then plagues came. God wasn't going to put up with that. So I tell you not to touch it, don't you touch it. Bring it all to me. They could, they could pick it up and bring it and give it. They couldn't keep it, but he kept it. And then Israel suffered for it. And God, just like with Aaron and the golden calf, punished everybody for the sin of one because they were going in to form a nation to be the nation of God, a particular and redeemed people. And he wasn't going to put up with any baloney. Let's go to 2 Samuel 6. I'm just picking out a few examples here of some pretty important junctures in Israel's history. There's a lot more about trumpet and trumpets in here than I have by any means time to cover Am I done? Almost. Oh well. We'll we'll be done by five, I know. Second Samuel six. Now the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they had it for some time. And again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. <clears> and David rose and went with all the people with him from Bailey of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwells between the cherubims. I'm not going to make any mistake about who's behind this. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Benadab that was in Gibeah. Now, wait a minute.
That's when David has hold of it here. Am I getting ahead of myself? Uh, David knew that he had been made king. And in verse 23, when da oh, I'm in chapter 5. I didn't mean to go back there. Where am I here? Anyway, they were bringing the ark back to Israel from the uh, Philistines. And David, verse 5, And all the house of Israel played before the eternal on all, all manner of instruments made of firewood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and cornets and, some, and on cymbals. So they were making a lot of music and were so happy to see the Ark of the Covenant coming back from the Philistines to Israel. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. Hit a rock in the road or whatever, or shied away from something and shook the wagon. That was on a new wagon, not ever used for anything else. This is the ark of God, not to be put on a used wagon. So it was an important moment. And the anger of the Eternal was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. That sounds kind of harsh in a way, doesn't it? He's just trying to help, trying to steady the thing, and God struck him dead. Remember, he had told him, don't you come near this mountain. <laughs> don't you touch it or you die. When you come into the presence of God, it is an important event. And when the Ark of the Covenant is coming back to Israel after having been gone a while, it is a singularly important event. And nobody was to touch that. And when he did, he died. God doesn't make these pronouncements in vain. He does what he says he'll do. He might have thought, oh, Uzzah, why did you do that? Zap. I don't think he hated Uzzah. But Uzzah had done something he'd been told not to do. And David was pleased because the Eternal had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Eternal that day and said, how shall the ark of the Eternal come to me? So David said, I may be king, but if he touched it and died, how can I receive the ark of God? So he sent it somewhere else, to another man's place. And he brought the uh, ark, verse uh, 12, to the house of Obed-Edom, into the city of David with gladness. He's scared to take it home with him, but... He put it there with gladness that it was back. And David danced before the Eternal with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. <coughs> so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Eternal with shouting, with the sound of the trumpet. Didn't mention it earlier among those instruments, but they also had the trumpet. And as the ark of the Eternal came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Eternal. 
and she despised him, and so on. But he was mightily excited to see the things of God begin to happen. Now, you know, the Philistines had had that ark for some time. I cannot imagine that they didn't at times touch it. Probably did. But God had not made a covenant with the Philistines. He had made a covenant with Israel. And it was Israel, it was God's ark, but it was made for Israel in their approach and their relationship with God. So they were the ones that were up totally responsible. They were the ones that God held accountable, if you will. I don't know, I'm just speculating. I don't know whether the Philistines touched it or not, but I'd be surprised if they hadn't. They would not have had the warning the same way. They would not have understood the importance of it. That was Israel's idol or, you know, whatever. They wouldn't have revered it. They would not have respected it and probably misused it. And God just was hands off. We're going to have the same thing happen again. They're going to defile the temple that is built. And that's the time to get out of there and flee to the mountains of Judea. So they're going to touch the holy things. They are. And God's going to let them get away with it. That's one reason I think he may have here. They'll get away with it for three and a half years, and then they won't anymore. God will then hold them accountable. Why? Because they've been told for three and a half years, every day. And then they will be held accountable for what they have heard and not accepted and followed. It also reminds me, well, let's see. Maybe I'll just stop right there. I have more. I can't stop there. Too much here about the Feast of Trumpets. And I've gotten through the first third of the page. These examples take a bit of time to uh, develop and to talk about. Uh, let's just, let's do one more. Let's go to Judges 7. Then I'll stop for the day. Judges 7. I'd like to give you hope. Maybe he will quit. All right. <clears throat> then Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, had a Jerubbabel, Zerubbabel back then, same essential name, same root, as we'll have here at the end. I think that's interesting considering this story. Who is Gideon? And all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. <coughs> and the Lord said to Gideon, The people that are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. 
Sometimes we limit God because of our human nature. He said, you've got a lot of men, a lot of warriors there, and if I say you go down and you destroy the Midianites, you're going to come back and say, who needs God? Look what we just did. Vanity, ego, self-righteousness, forgetting who was their deliverer. Now, we've already seen a bit of that. So quickly forget who does what. So God says, I'm about to do something here, but I want you to recognize where it comes from. Let's make no mistake about this. It reminds me of Zechariah 4. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the eternal. So God starts small. And he starts with people who can do nothing. And he causes things to be done by his power that we could not by any means even begin to do on our own power. And he says that will happen again here at the end. I think it's interesting that we have a man on his deathbed at this moment who I believe will be significant here at the end. And I think that fits. Somebody at the end of their life have become weak, have become utterly unable to do much of anything, not even eat, and God can raise up and use somebody by his spirit. And then there is no question whatever of power and might of man, but by the Spirit of God. So with that in mind, let's read on. I want you to know who saved you. Now therefore, verse 3, go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whosoever is fearful and afraid. Now there are a lot of Midianites down there, whole valley full of them. If anybody is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. If you're scared, say you're scared and go away. Okay? They returned to the people 22,000 who said, I'm scared. And they left. 22,000 of them. Now there remain 10,000. Still a good number of people, but there are a lot more Midianites than that down in the valley. The Eternal said to Gideon, the people are yet too many. <laughs> they might even still say they did it instead of me. Bring them down to the water, and I will try them for you there, and it shall be that of whom I say to you, this shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And whomsoever I say to you, this shall not go with you, the same shall not go. I'm going to winnow this thing down. So he brought them down to the water, and the eternal said to Gideon, Everyone that laps up of the water with his tongue, as a dog laps him, shall you set by himself. Likewise, everyone that bows down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men, but all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. If you're at a creek, it's, 
easier in a lot of ways to get down on your knees and on your hands and just drink right out of the running water. That's easier than taking your dirty hands and trying to get water in your hands and get it to your mouth without spilling some or all of it and get it in your mouth out of your hands. That's harder to do. So most people went the easy way. They just got on their hands and knees, put their head down and drank. I've done it that way many times. I've tried doing it the other way and I didn't like it as well. You're out in the woods or hunting or whatever. So, 300 put their hands to their mouth. And the Eternal said to Gideon, By the 300 men that laughed will I save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand and let all the other people go every man to his place. So here God cut it from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300. That's a pretty good reduction. I think that's worth Uncle Joe right now. Uh, <laughs> he's sending men home from the military. But he won't cut it down this much. So the people took food in their hand and their trumpets. Food and trumpets is all they needed. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. It came to pass the same night that the Eternal said to him, Arise, get you down to the host, for I have delivered it into your hand. This is just Gideon alone. He says, you go down there to the valley. But if you fear to go down, <laughs> which he did, go you with Fura, your servant, down to the host, and you shall hear what they say. I want you to go down and scout this and listen to what those Midianites are saying. He's making Gideon perform, show faith, show trust in God, all by himself with just one man to go with him, against tens of thousands of Midianites. And afterward shall your hands be strengthened to go, to go down to the host. I'm sending you down there because I'm going to give you confidence and faith in me. Then he went down with Phura to the outside of the armed men that were in the host. They crept up to the edge of the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east, several different people allied together, lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. Have you seen a swarm of grasshoppers come across the land? I've seen it in West Texas. And there's no way you're going to count them. <laughs> they come in swarms. And their camels were without number. There's, there's, no, there's so many camels down there you couldn't begin to count them. As the sand by the seed sea for multitude. You've been to the beach. Sand is everywhere. And it's small and there's a... Try counting yourself out of a million grains of sand. So it's just, it's just like going to the sea and the camels are like sand. That's what it looked like. 
And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream to his fellows. So they had crept down close enough to hear the talking in the camp. You've got to be pretty close. These guys weren't excited. They were just sitting there talking to each other. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came to a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it that the tent lay flattened. Now that's a pretty good-sized chunk of bread. <laughs> I've never seen a loaf quite that big, but this is just a man's dream. You know how dreams are. And his fellow answered and said, he put it together real fast. This <clears throat> uh, is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. For into his hand has God delivered Midian and all the host. Your camp's going to get knocked flat, and God's going to have Gideon do it. Those, that was music to Gid's ears, I'm sure, <laughs> you know. And it was so, when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation, that he worshipped and returned into the host of Israel, he said a prayer, he thanked God, and went back to the 300 men, and said, Arise, for the Eternal has delivered you into your hand, the host of Midian. Now those men also had a problem, I would assume. We were 32,000, then we were 22, and now you tell us 300 of us are going to go down there and whoop them. Okay. <clears throat> and he divided the 300 men into three companies, 100 men in each company, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand. 300 men, 300 trumpets. Now, we're examining today primarily trumpets and how God uses trumpets, this being the Feast of Trumpets. So every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. So they had a pitcher, probably of clear glass, with a candle in it so that it could be seen. So 300 lamps, 300 trumpets, and 300 men. And I wonder if they kind of looked at each other and said, that's not a sword, it's not a bow, what am I going to do with this? Passing them out. Got 300 of these for you guys. <clears throat> and he said to them, look on me, watch me, and do what I do. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall you do. So they kind of sucked it up and said, Okay, if you say so. When I blow with a trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow you the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and say, The sword of the eternal and of Gideon. So show your lamp, blow your trumpet, and holler, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they shouted that at the top of their lungs, I'm sure. 
because they were scared. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came to the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. Middle of the night, everybody's asleep, dreaming their dreams. Nobody's watching much. And they had but newly set the watch, had changed the watch. New guys come out. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands, probably slammed them against the rocks. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpet in their right hand. So they had taken the candle out of the lamp, smashed it, and still had the light in one hand and the trumpet, well, left hand for the candle and the right hand was the trumpet, to blow. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets to blow with. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp. They just held their ground, holding that, blowing the trumpet, and hollering. And all the hosts ran and cried and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the hosts. And the hosts fled to Beth Shittin in Zerarath, and to the border of uh, Abel Meola, unto Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together and pursued after them. They were dead asleep. They woke up when they heard the trumpets and the shout, and they saw 300 lamps, and they must have thought there were tens of thousands of people there. And 300 trumpets, when you're dead asleep, on every side, could be quite nerve-wracking. So they jumped up and began swinging their swords at anything they saw. And they killed each other. And the men of Gideon just stood there and watched. Now what do you think they said when they went back to camp with all the Israelites? We went out and made a great victory. We killed those tens of thousands of Midianites on our own. I don't think so. I'll bet they were truly impressed that it turned out the way that it did. But it was done this was a very, very important moment in Israel's history when they had that many men coming to kill them. We are going to have a coalition of many nations come after us very soon now, and this isn't going to happen. God is going to let them overrun us because he's done with us. He's tired of us. He's tired of our disobedience and our lying and thieving and adultery and murder and hate and all the things that Americans do and putting everything ahead of God, breaking the first commandment. He's fed up with it. He's not going to permit anymore. He's going to punish. And we don't have time today, but there's trumpets involved. So I think maybe I'll just pick this up on Sabbath and uh, finish it because it's an important story. It's just more than I could get out but it's still the peace season and still trumpet season, and there's a lot more that we can learn here. But I hope it's impressing upon us at least 
that when he said, keep a feast of trumpets, we need to understand what that entails and how the trumpet was used. And we've seen a few examples, very dramatic ones, where he's used trumpets to get done what he needed to get done. And that story is not finished, and we'll talk about it some more uh, come Sabbath, God willing.